Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. Free speech in Britain's universities is apparently facing an unprecedented crisis as students know platform speakers with whom they disagree. According to The Guardian, if in the face of such threats, university authorities and academic staffs generally decide to do nothing, they should not be surprised when Parliament and the public begin to believe that academic freedom is a term which has lost its meaning. If the universities cease to defend it, will anyone else? Meanwhile, a government green paper proposes legislation to combat no platforming. It says all institutions at all times have a responsibility to ensure that their affairs are conducted as befits a liberal institution. In particular, they have a responsibility to protect freedom of speech within the law, even for those with widely unpopular views. This is essential as part of a free society for critical thought and the liberal education which it underpins. It's urgent stuff. The thing is, the Guardian quote is from 1968 and the Green Paper is from 1985. So this moral panic is not new by any means. Both quotes appear in a new book by today's guest. Joining us from Adelaide is Evan Smith, a research fellow at Flinders University in South Australia. He's written widely about political extremism, social movements and national security in Britain, Australia and South Africa. And he's the author of No Platform, a history of anti-fascism, universities and the limits of free speech. Thanks for joining me, Evan. Thank you for having me. So your book starts with a quote from Sam Juma when he was universities minister, talking about an anti-democratic cultural shift due to no platforming, safe spaces and trigger warnings, which he sort of squilched together. But then you, you start your actual narrative with protests against Oswald Mosley's fascists in the 1930s. Does this sort of explain one of the reasons you wrote the book in the first place, to sort of give people this uh, long view and say that it doesn't actually appear in the age of uh, Twitter? Yeah, so my starting point was that the recent debates which happened over the last five years are kind of beginning with the no-platforming of Jermaine Greer at Cardiff University. Uh, they were kind of ahistorical and talked about this free speech crisis and no platforming and the kind of associated things of safe spaces and trigger warnings as something new. And the no platform as a policy has been National Union Students Policy since uh, 1974 and it is based on a much longer uh, anti-fascist tactic that really starts with the uh, anti-fascism against Mosley in the 1930s. And it's often said that it used to be, uh, sort of in, in the good old days, uncontroversially aimed at, at just fascists, mm-hmm. but that there's sort of been mission creep uh, over the past decade. Um, you, your book shows shows otherwise. <laughs> yes, what uh, we could, might call proto-no-platforming, so no-platforming is a tactic rather than a policy, wasn't really addressing um, fascists on campus, but right-wing politicians and right-wing academics. So in my book, I show that there were protests against Enoch Powell, against people from the Monday Club, uh, against the psychologist Hans Eysenck. So that it actually wasn't always just about fascism, but it was about um, the hard right and it's about racism. And then there was a long-running debate about applying it to pro-Israel or um, Zionist um, groups. And then in the 1980s, people wanted to extend it to no platform for sexists, no platform for homophobes, uh, no platform for anti-abortionists. So my book has shown that it's always been in flux. It's always been a contested about who should be allowed to have a platform and who should be denied a platform. I suppose when people are trying to assess controversial episodes, you need to think about the sort of moral and intellectual justification for no platforming. And, and that, the language around that seems to have evolved a bit. 
what essentially is it? Is it the kind of the safety argument you hear a lot, which kind of equates rhetoric with violence? And so it's, it's, it's actually a kind of a threat to certain kinds of students. Mm. Or is it something else to do with, uh, you know, the values of the institution? Or, or, or what, what's the kind of, I know there's no written law here, but mm. what's it underpinned by? So I think a lot of the times it's underpinned by this idea that speech doesn't exist in a vacuum, that speech uh, needs to be considered and it's within its kind of real-world applications and what it can lead to. Um, so when people in the 1980s were pushing for no platform for sexist and no platform for homophobes, they were arguing that sexist speech and homophobic speech cannot be uh, divorced from other forms of violence and discrimination. Well, I mean, one sort of controversial recent-ish example was there's a last-minute disinvitation of Amber Rudd. Um, mm-hmm. She was being uh, protested because of what she had done while in office. It was not going to be mm-hmm. the subject of sort of her rhetoric. She wasn't going to go and give a yes. speech that was anti-immigrant. Um, mm. So that seemed to me to sort of be one of those cases where uh, that that kind of basic idea was just sort of pushed to one side, and then there was another idea. Do you think? I know this is a, it's an academic book. You're not you're not sort of a polemicist, and you're not sort of taking sides here. But can the justification constantly mutate, or are there cases? Are there uh, you know lines crossed, or particular cases where? They sort of undermine the legitimacy of the tactic if you can't justify it the way you would normally justify a tactic. Well, I think one of the things about the Amber Rudd episode is who made the decision to disinvite her and whether that came from people who opposed Amber Rudd, you know, why they did that. So that is something that's still contested. But uh, should people who have previously been involved in kind of uh, discriminatory decisions, uh, government decisions. Uh, another case is that Tim- Timothy Raison, who was immigration minister uh, in the early 1980s, he was no platformed at LSE because he had been involved when the Thatcher government introduced the British Nationality Act 1981, which was highly discriminatory against um, migrants from outside of Europe and that students felt that representatives of the government, um, you know, that their past actions need to be taken into account when they are given platforms, even if they aren't going to be defending their legacy. But I do understand, because I do understand the impulse, and I think probably if I was a student at those particular times, I probably would have, uh, would have, would have, would have agreed. But I do wonder, like, there doesn't seem to be a rule of thumb here, like a kind of um, a test that has to be met. You know, is your rhetoric sufficiently there's a certain kind of rhetoric fascist rhetoric obviously or um islamic extremist rhetoric which is sort of intimately related to to violence to physical violence Mm. and then you could get you could say that rule and i think that would be something that would probably have got quite wide legitimacy and you and that same rule that might be extended towards transphobia becomes more contentious but it's the same principle Mm. but this this principle of like well we don't like a thing that you did in a previous job seems to be another uh, principle. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying whether it's sort of right or wrong, but mm. is, 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 the, is the problem with, is there sort of inherent problem with no platforming? Is there isn't one essential justification. There isn't one kind of test. It's kind of, a, 
it can be it is constantly mutating, and that the argument therefore is is never resolved. Well, I think that's part of how kind of protest works, and I think that we should understand that no platforming is both a policy and as a tactic, and as a policy, it is set out uh, at national level by the NUS that there are six organisations which. Um, uh, to be no platformed, three uh, kind of right-wing organisations and three Islamic fundamentalist organisations. Then there's individual student unions who would have their own policies and own kind of bars to be met for people who should be denied a platform. But then there's no platforming as a tactic and that is always in flux. Now, the media will concentrate on these kind of the fuzzy borders of no platform platform rather than most of the cases um, mm. where it's more uh, kind of clear. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the commentators are talking from outside the university and outside the student body um, about the rights and wrongs, whether, and I think that it kind of overlooks that the kind of the grassroots democratic nature of it as a tactic. Do you think that student debate if, for example, there was no platforming and everybody was just allowed to sort of come and speak, mm. do you think that these kind of invitations, do they actually serve that purpose to create this kind of lively marketplace of ideas and campus? Or is that a bit of a, um, a myth? Uh, I think that if there wasn't an opposition, then some of the kind of more controversial speakers probably wouldn't get invited. So, uh, you know, that when the Federation of Conservative Students was around in the 70s and 80s, they would deliberately invite controversial speakers to antagonise the student left. And you can see the same nowadays. You, see, you know, that uh, people like Katie Hopkins, um, as I said in the book, is that there's a kind of a symbiotic relationship between the right-wing speakers or the controversial speakers who use the university uh as a kind of uh, a legitimising tool, but there's also the people who invite them and what do they get out of it? Uh, a lot of the time it's notoriety or a sense of trolling. So, you know, I'm not sure whether uh, when these controversial speakers are invited, whether it's really about uh, debate or whether it's about creating a spectacle. And, you know, along with the sort of the, the kind of veneration of the marketplace of ideas is the sort of idea of you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And there's this classic yeah. example of Nick Griffin's disastrous question time performance, 2009, being sort of held mm-hmm. responsible for the BNP's electoral woes. Um, you describe that as a, as a myth in the book, you know, that it, that it all sort of stemmed from there. Do you think there is something wrong or like or unrealistic about the idea that the, the only way you need to combat bad ideas is is good ideas like it's because it's a wonderful idea mm. the way that you could debate mm. the worst people in the world into impotence um yeah but, but do you think it's actually practically true no well we could point to the rise of the hard and populist right across the world over the last decade uh you know nigel farage was exposed <laughs> to the sunlight uh pretty regularly and how how well did that work out? You know, that Donald Trump was uh, given the exposure of sunlight, but he still won an election. Like, I think that, you know, this idea that if we give these people a platform and we debate them and, and kind of engage with them, is it, is it going to kind of show up the falsity of their ideas and show the contradictions of their ideas? Uh, I don't think that really works. 
Right, yeah, yeah. I suppose one thing that bothers me is there's a, there seems to be a refusal to use the words to accept that ever, this is ever a, a restriction on free speech or, or censorship. And there's an argument that as long as somebody can be heard somewhere in the country, then they are not being censored. Mm. Would it, do you think it would be more honest to say, yeah, in the case of no platforming, uh, yes, you know, we are restricting the free speech of these specific people and here's why, like here's our justification or do you do you think that there is a justification for somehow going that this is outside the realm of of censorship and, and restricting free speech? Well, I think that it's different by who is denying the speech. If a government bans certain forms of uh, political organisation or protest or forms of political speech, or if Twitter or Facebook don't allow this person to have a platform. That's different from the government prosecuting them under kind of legislation. And it's different, again, from these kind of denial by student bodies. But I think that um, one thing about no platform as a tactic from below, uh, it's, it's an argument that, yes, fascist and racist and kind of hateful ideas shouldn't be allowed a platform because their speech is part of kind of a framework around discrimination, around violence, around uh, treating people not as equals, and that there are certain things that are outside kind of should be outside of discourse or uh, outside of legitimate discourse. And, yes, that restricting that speech is a positive for, you know, the majority. That seems to me to be firmer ground, I think. Mm. Free speech is a kind of a liberal idea that ignores reality that we shouldn't give uh, free speech to everybody and that freedom of speech doesn't kind of practically exist for everybody. Um, so I think that mm. always kind of in in the kind of way that no platforming is looked at is, is from a kind of a left-wing criticism of that kind of liberal centre which ignores reality. Well, uh, moving on to the, the free speech absolutists, you wrote for The Guardian recently and you mentioned them towards the end of the book about the influence of the mm. sort of living Marxism spiked online revolutionary communist party diaspora. Um, and that group always opposed no platforming because they're free speech absolutists. Um, mm. How have they come to represent mainstream conservative thought and how have the people behind living Marxism become the main opponents of... Uh, so-called cultural Marxism, you know, the the, uh, mm. the the sort of invented bugbear. Like, how has that happened? So the Revolutionary Communist Party uh, it started out in the late 70s and early 80s um, and it was kind of an ultra-left organisation, but different from the kind of other Trotskyist groups around the time, so different from uh, the Socialist Workers' Party or the International Marxist Group, is that they had um, no time for no platform because uh, one thing is that they believed that it kind of asked the government or kind of other authority figures to clamp down on free speech and they were always saying that if that happens, then it can be used against anyone. Mm. So there was a kind of anti-statist Approach, and I think that's something which then leads into what we see now via living Marxism and now in spiked. But there was also something else happening uh, at the same time is that the RCP always kind of argued that 
anti-fascism against the National Front and the BNP and uh, and kind of fascist groups kind of is a sideshow to the main fight against racism, which is the state. So throughout the 80s is that they had this kind of no platform is kind of uh, an invitation for the state to uh, crack down on free speech. But at the same time, we should be really focusing on fighting the racism of the state. So they had the kind of dual approach, like free speech, everybody, but fight racism. And they were all, they very much encouraged kind of like workers groups on the street, uh, kind of to uh, protect migrant communities, et cetera, et cetera. But then by the 1990s, the workers against racism kind of front group kind of dwindles, but the RCP maintains free speech to everybody. Um, so that they're, their long trajectory over 40 years from RCP to what they are now in Spiked, the the goalposts have shifted um, and now Spiked uh, ends up in the same place as people like Toby Young, who is a, you know, rights of the spectator and is a conservative. It kind of uh, is the same argument being made by Nigel Farage, by uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, by Daniel Hannan, uh, by other people that um, you know haven't gone on that same journey, but they've ended up in the same spot. That's an amazing journey for self-proclaimed uh, living Marxists. Yes. Well, finally, uh, most of these cases that we're talking about, you know, they were obviously, I mean, there are post-grads, and, but most of them involving pretty young people, very intelligent, sort of talented, uh, mm-hmm. but still young. Um, why... Are journalists and politicians so disproportionately obsessed with decisions made by small groups of people in their kind of late teens and early twenties? Why? Why did? Why is all this? This stuff always becomes news, and it's always the main sort. Of, it's the main focus for the sort of culture wars, and as you point out, has been for decades. Why? So, I, th- I think. Uh, universities are often a battleground against old ideas. You know, as much as there's this portrayal that students nowadays are sheltered and they don't want to be exposed to controversial ideas, at the same time is that students are at the forefront of challenging kind of um, traditionalism, leading the way to kind of challenge racism, fascism, sexism, homophobia, you know, transphobia, and you know, and traditional class hierarchies and imperial legacies and all that kind of stuff. So, why were they targeted? Because they were a vocal opposition to the status quo. So, while the in the sixties and seventies they were seen as kind of radical, violent, subversives, nowadays they are seen as kind of uh, over censorious uh, Stalinists. Uh, that you know, they, they're kind of like uh, mini. Uh, mini big brothers um and that that it's a different kind of threat that they pose uh but it but it's kind of that idea that students because they are are challenging uh ideas is that they must be seen as a threat i i do admire their ability to be mccarthyites and stalinists at the same time Mm. something (laughs) <laughs> Something once historically impossible, but uh, but today's students seem to allegedly have pulled it off. Yep. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining me, Evan Smith. Thank you. No Platform is published by Routledge. And thanks to you for listening. The Bunker Daily comes out every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with a weekly edition every Wednesday. Take care and see you soon.
The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by me, Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald and audio production is by Robin Lieber. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. 